Hi, and welcome to the Stefan Levera podcast, a show about Bitcoin and Austrian economics. Today for episode 170, my guest is Yuri Degaia, partner at L2B Global and doing OTC trading at Bitcoin Reserve. This show is brought to you by Kraken, one of the world's leading Bitcoin exchanges. They're one of the largest. They offer some of the best liquidity available. They are one of the longest standing exchanges, and they are consistently rated the best from a security standpoint. Kraken offer 24-7 support, and it's really easy to sign up with them. They also offer Kraken Pro mobile app, delivering all the security and features you love about the Kraken Exchange in a beautiful mobile-first design. Kraken also offer margin trading up to five times and futures up to 50 times leverage. Go and sign up at kraken.com. Next up is Unchained Capital, Bitcoin Financial Services. The team have been driving people to try out multi-signature before the halving. If you're bullish, you want to try and improve your security and Unchained Capital make it really easy for you to do this with this multi-signature vault. It's a two of three multi-signature setup. You can use Trezor and Ledger and Coldegard is coming soon. They've also got some really cool updates coming on the open source side with Caravan, which I'm sure I'll be getting the guys on soon to show you that also. So keep an eye out for that. And if you want some liquidity, if you want USD, you can put up some Bitcoin it's stored on-chain in dedicated multi-sig addresses, and you can receive USD. Unchained Capital also have incredible content on their blog and on their website, so go and learn more at unchained-capital.com. Next, Swan Bitcoin. The dollar cost averaging revolution is rising. More and more people are looking for ways to stack Bitcoin without manual processing. If you are in the US, you must look up Swan Bitcoin at swanbitcoin.com. You can link any major US bank account via ACH and just auto buy Bitcoins weekly or monthly. Swan Bitcoin also have a focus on education and Bitcoin advocacy. They're really trying to get customers to hold their own Bitcoin private keys. I'm an advisor and I have a small equity stake also. Swan Bitcoin are the cheapest for dollar cost averaging. And there's also a recent episode with Corey, so go and check that out. Finally, just go to swanbitcoin.com for your automated Bitcoin stacking. So Yuri Degaia, he's a partner at L2B Global the entity behind Bitcoin Reserve, which is an OTC service, Liquidity, a service for swapping into L Bitcoin or LBTC, and also Moon Tower. So in this episode, we talk about Bitcoin's two economies. We've got this regulated compliant world, and then there's the defiant crypto anarchist world. And how will they grow? Do they support each other? And how does this all play into this idea of citadels and monarchy and anarcho-capitalism? So here is the interview. Yuri, welcome to the show, man. Thanks, Stefan. Glad to be here. So, Yuri, I know uh, you have been doing a lot of interesting stuff in the Bitcoin space. You're uh, working primarily as like an OTC trader, but also doing some writing and you've got Bitcoin Reserve Journal. Uh, so I think it'd be interesting to get into some of these ideas around what are Bitcoin's two economies. And I know you're also a Citadel uh Citadel addict, <laughs> um, but uh, t- t- tell us a little bit about how you got into doing Bitcoin OTC. Yeah, well, that was pretty much as soon as I uh, got into Bitcoin, late 2012. So I learned about Bitcoin from the local meetup group in Vancouver. Uh, there was literally six, seven people attending weekly at that time. So it was an interesting time. At, uh, and I learned a lot from these people. But then um, I'm, I'm a practical person, so I just wanted to see what I can do with it practically. And uh, it just turned out that uh, I was asked for some Bitcoin from someone who didn't have them. And um, I didn't have on, uh, a lot on me, so I saw an opportunity basically to just buy a little bit and resell it to that person at a slight markup. And, you know, worked uh, really well. And I was uh, like, well... There's an opportunity there, and uh, you know I started doing uh, a little bit of that. And as time went, you know, uh, interest grew obviously, and uh, especially after uh, the first halving, and then we started uh, getting uh, larger requests. And uh, I was uh, uh, thinking about uh, leveling up essentially, and you know, cash transactions they are tricky in that you know uh, cash is. Uh, uh, it's difficult to handle and you never know who you deal with. So I wanted to get into, you know, uh, uh, so to speak, a white side of the business, uh, right? So um, I uh, started uh, doing OTC with the Binary Financial, one of the larger brokers out there. And uh, at the same time, I got into the retail space by launching a Bitcoin ATM business. 
uh, in Vancouver, which uh, right now is uh, pretty large in Canada with over uh, 75 uh, kiosks uh, across the country. So uh, that was a lot of fun. And uh, I learned a lot from both from this uh, retail space and high net worth uh, space as well. And at some point, I just uh, decided to branch off and start my own company, which is uh, what I'm doing right now with uh, OTC brokerage. Um, when it comes to OTC, there is different types of uh, OTC deals out there. What I do is uh, mostly uh, help uh, individuals and uh, corporate clients buy and sell Bitcoin on a pre-funded basis. So that is the type of uh, deals that I engage in. Awesome. You're, ta- you're talking about OTC and there is in the Bitcoin world, you could argue there's almost two spheres of influence, right? We've got this whole regulated KYC white market world. And then we've got the, on the other side, the more defiant black market or gray market crypto anarchist world. So can you tell us a little bit about how you're thinking about those two different spheres? Yeah, sure. So Essentially, the compliant part of the market is uh, what's represented by on and off ramps, such as uh, Bitcoin exchanges and brokerage houses, OTC desks. This is essentially any business that has to do with uh, fiat and Bitcoin at the same time. Those businesses are uh, what I like to call them bridges between the two worlds, the world of Bitcoin and the world of fiat. And because they have to touch fiat uh, in terms of uh, banking uh, transactions, they have to abide by the rules of the fiat world, which is, uh, as uh, you may know, KYC and AML laws and regulations. And those are pretty strict and they change over time and they get stricter and stricter. And the problem with that is that a lot of the time, regulators don't really know uh, how to deal with certain transactions in certain situations. And what they decide to do is just, you know, they see any problem as a nail and they just act as a hammer and uh, they decide to impose draconian regulations, which result essentially in the suffering of uh, regular people and regular businesses who don't really want to do any shady transactions, don't engage in any anti-money, in any money laundering activities, right? So they suffer from that. Now, the other side of the coin is the, uh, defiant economy, as you called it, or a non-compliant economy. And by that, I simply mean the economy that operates only on Bitcoin. So it's pretty much the proverbial circular economy that we dream about, where your revenues are in Bitcoin, or your expenses are in Bitcoin, and you pay your suppliers in Bitcoin. And this is this magical world that we uh, really uh, want to happen. Uh, But uh, we all know that uh, right now and probably in the long run, Bitcoin is going to be volatile. So at some point, you have to interact with the fiat world, right? So that's why I think the um, compliant economy is still um, a lot bigger than the non-compliant economy, simply because uh, players on the market have to exit and enter the uh, Bitcoin economy all the time. But it's definitely interesting to see how the circular economy will develop, especially with uh, various derivative markets where uh, you will be able to hedge your uh, Bitcoin and essentially lock the value of your Bitcoin so that you never have to uh, exit the Bitcoin economy into the fiat world, right? Um, As far as I know, some uh, companies who do need to exit, they just do it uh, very minimally, you know, uh, with... uh, uh, to say some deals like for uh, hosting services, VPS, uh, you know, graphic designers sometimes who don't accept Bitcoin, they just need to pay in fiat. But those are not difficult problems to solve. You can easily do that with uh, cash-based transactions, for example, just exchange Bitcoins into cash and pay in cash or uh, exchange Bitcoin for a small amount of a, in a bank transfer and just pay like that. Um, so yeah, those are the two differences between them. And I don't think they are... Um, fighting each other. These two economies, I think they coexist and they will coexist for a long time. But uh, the long game for us Bitcoiners, of course, is to uh, drive out the fiat economy and just uh, uh, absorb all of it into this Bitcoin world where we can just interact with one universal sound money.
Yeah, that sounds definitely very appealing. And it's quite frustrating for many Bitcoin people when they have to interact with the regulatory compliance world, because in many ways, it's almost like the state turns businesses into part of their own surveillance and it makes them do their own bidding. And that can be unsettling for Bitcoiners because, for example, the state will say, okay, you must comply with this X, Y, and Z AML or sanctions rule. And as part of that, you have to do X, Y, and Z invasive questioning on your customer to know what are they spending and who is it to and where did they get this money from. And uh, in, in some cases, it's, all, it's also that the government laws and rules specify certain things. Like, for example, in the AML parlance, there's a, there's a term known as tipping off, theoretically. And so you're not allowed to uh, disclose to the customer why they are under suspicion. Uh, and so then it makes the business then start reporting off to the government about on uh, uh, transactions above a certain threshold known as a threshold transaction reporting or um, uh, and then there's also suspicious matter reporting or sus- you know, suspicious reporting as well. So do you have any reflections there on that tension that the government regulation creates between Bitcoin companies and Bitcoin users and customers? Well, yeah, for sure. Because uh, if you look at it, uh, even from the broker's point of view, um, especially uh, in terms of high net worth brokerage, then all transactions are pretty much uh, large sizes. And in a lot of countries, these uh, AML guidelines require you to report any transaction over $10,000 of value, right? So that's pretty much uh, every single client being reported to the government simply for the fact of transacting and deciding to buy or sell Bitcoin, right? So that creates a little bit of uh, mistrust because this is a a lot of information, private information uh, that is being uh, sent to the government. And uh, we don't know what they do with it. Maybe they just collect it for, uh, you know, uh, further analysis. Maybe they monitor every single uh, Bitcoin uh, user. We don't know what they're going to do with that company. But what I know is that um, there are players on the market who decided to take advantage of this desire of the government to spy on Bitcoin users, right? And they created a service around that. Uh, the service is called Blockchain Analytics, and well, that's what uh, companies like um, uh, Chainalysis, Elliptic, and uh, others uh, engage in. So essentially, they realized that the government has this desire of uh, monitoring every single transaction they want to know where the money moves and who moved that money so uh, these companies came up with certain heuristics uh, in terms of uh, uh, determining who the owner of the coins is and where the coins are moved and they managed to convince the government and law enforcement agencies that uh, uh, their heuristics are usable and uh, they should be used by those agencies, right? So they, they sell these services to them. It does not really matter whether these heuristics are correct or incorrect, whether the service works or doesn't work. What matters is that if the government decides that they are correct, it means that everybody has to suffer because of that decision, right? Because suddenly, if the government says, well, this transaction has uh, originates from a uh, gambling website five hops behind, right? So this person who is connected with this transaction may be suspected of illegal gambling activity, for example, right? And suddenly, everybody who deals with uh, such uh, persons uh, is already in a tricky position. Should they deal with him? Should they not, right? So this definitely creates some tension. So I I really like to see where this is going. And uh, one of the interesting uh, technologies uh, that's being developed to combat this is uh, coin join, as you may know. Yeah, and that's uh, the interesting point there as well that you you mentioned some of these Bitcoin surveillance companies basically try to market themselves to government and say, hey, look, you need us. And there's also an interaction there in terms of big business prefers lobbying the government than competing in the marketplace in certain scenarios. So can you expand on that idea? How do you see that playing out? Is this an area where you see that playing out? Well, definitely. I think the 
main argument here is that you need to understand that uh, all these big businesses in Bitcoin are founded and operated by individuals who come from traditional finance backgrounds. And if you are born in a traditional finance environment, then by default, you like that system. You like playing with that system and you realize that any access to government officials may bring benefits to you personally and to your company. So that's why these businesses like to create different consortiums and uh, pursue various uh, lobbying activities within different governments so that they can see various laws uh, passed. Obviously, everything is uh, wrapped around uh, you know, customer protection, uh, as it's usually done. But at the end of the day, it's the old game of uh, crony capitalism where people uh, create laws uh, that benefit them. You know, the big business scratches the government's back, the government scratches the big business's back. And uh, it's not different in Bitcoin either. That's why I think in the non-compliant economy, uh, there will appear large businesses that will be able to fight back or at least not fight back, but simply ignore these things because they accumulate uh, you know, financial weight, essentially, to just not, be, uh, not care about these types of situations. Yeah, that's, that's a great point. And to add to that, there's also just the physical meat space risk. So if you are an entrepreneur, you're starting a Bitcoin business, and you are a publicly known name, then you have risk to your person as well, that you can't just shrug that off, that if you were to... Because basically your options are either comply with the regulation, shut down the business, or go the underground pathway of not complying. And anyone who tries to take that underground not complying pathway does risk getting you know, physically uh, attacked or you know, locked away in a cage and so on. So that is ultimately, I guess, the meat space risk that any public name Bitcoin entrepreneur faces. And so that is also another sort of angle and that's part of yeah, that's part of the difficulty. And I suppose that is why uh, some individuals in the space operate under a pseudonym only. Precisely. And uh, that's why uh, us being public uh, figures, we have to just, you know, play within the system and play by their rules. And we have to run our companies and follow these KYC AML guidelines. We can uh, shitpost about them all day long, but it doesn't matter, right? We can, We have to still follow if we want to keep operating. The way I see it is that while uh, it's not very convenient to do so, we still provide a valuable service to people who want an on-ramp to the Bitcoin economy, right? So while it's still possible for people to actually come to us, send us money and get a load of Bitcoin, uh, we will do everything we can to make that happen because I believe that right now uh, there still needs to happen more uh, decentralization of UTXOs, if you will, you know, uh, more hands need to uh, have Bitcoins because uh, right now, especially with uh, larger custodians out there, uh, you know, some people sit on huge piles of Bitcoins just waiting to be uh, hacked one day or you know, stolen in some way. And um, well, our job as the on-ramp is to help decentralization of uh, that. Um, at the same time, as you mentioned, there are these uh, anonymous or pseudonymous uh, uh, entities out there who create quite valuable services. Uh, you know, Samurai Wallet is one of the examples. They're creating a uh, coin join uh, wallet uh, that allows people to mix their UTXOs. And uh, most of these guys are uh, anonymous as far as I'm concerned. Um, and the thing with them is that because they are a Bitcoin-only business, they don't really care about regulations much because they don't really interact with the fiat world. Uh, and as I mentioned, if you don't interact with the fiat world, you don't uh, need to follow much of the regulation. You don't have bank accounts. You don't use dollars. You only accept and spend Bitcoin in your business operations. Yep. And the question of scale. So might be one thing to be a 100% no fiat business. Uh, but it might arguably be the question there around if somebody wanted to buy a certain amount of Bitcoin above a certain size, 
they are naturally just going to have to go towards the regulated economy for now until the Bitcoin-only uh, non-compliant, defiant world grows a little bit. So what's your thought there on people that that trade-off of who you know want to be able to buy a certain amount of Bitcoins at scale uh, versus the tension of people wanting, say, more privacy or to operate in the non-compliant world? Yeah, well, I think uh, all of these things will develop with time. We just need to be patient because uh, Bitcoin is only 10 years old. It's a very new technology. Uh, one would argue it's still experimental and you shouldn't uh, play with it too much, right? Uh, the, uh, the biggest scare uh, for people is uh, losing their private keys, right? Uh, so, but uh, technologies uh, in terms of privacy and scaling are already happening right now. Uh, CoinJoin that I mentioned just a moment ago is one of those technologies um, for scaling. The Lightning Network is already uh, it's not just a separate technology, it's uh, its own industry already with its own conferences, right? So, uh, yes, it's a bit clunky right now and it uh, requires some manual setups and uh, sometimes things fail. But you can consider these technologies uh, as Bitcoin in 2011, 2012, where things are not very convenient. Uh, so let's wait for another five, ten years. I think it will be faster than ten years. Bitcoin, one Bitcoin year is ten fiat years, right? So <laughs> uh, essentially, uh, things are developing very fast. So. Uh, with uh, new technologies uh, coming up, like uh, Schnorr signatures, uh, a Taproot, we'll see a lot more uh, development in the privacy uh, space as well, and all kinds of new uh, types of transactions. Uh, uh, so these things are being developed, and I wouldn't really worry about them right now. Uh, I, I would argue that the average consumer does not care about these things. Yeah. Yeah. And one other, I suppose, risk that's worthwhile talking about from the compliant world is hypothetically, if an exchange is a upfront publicly known business, the government can easily or more easily go and demand from them, hey, give me a customer list and show me where did those coins go? Where did when they did a withdrawal from your exchange or from your service, where did those coins go? And now I'm going to try and use that to uh, basically go for taxation on those individuals. That is a risk that people face, right? Yeah, that's correct. And I think these uh, cases have happened in the past. And uh, some exchanges uh, decided to succumb to such requests, uh, while others decided to challenge them. I think Kraken was one of those examples that decided to challenge such a request, right? So props to them. Uh, but uh, these things will happen uh, more and more often and we'll just have to be ready for them. And uh, um, I'm not really sure how we can actually fight them because if you are a multi-billion dollar company, obviously you can hire an army of lawyers and fight off these risks. But if you're a uh, more or less small brokerage firm, even like us, we're quite lean, then uh, we probably don't want to fight them off and uh, piss them off even more. Yeah, yeah. Um, so turning now to the more kind of defiant world, the non-compliant world, people who want to, say, operate in this circular Bitcoin economy, they will have to deal with the volatility because it's kind of, it's difficult to price things directly in SATs while the price is moving around a lot, correct? Um, so, and, and I guess the other thing is there can be some difficulty in getting Bitcoiners to give up their SATs if they are fundamentally bullish. Well, it's kind of, difficult for them to do that too so uh how, how do you think people will try to deal with that is that uh, maybe one good example here is something like bitmex the exchange right because they're bitcoin in and out only and yet they still have trading on there uh, but you theoretically uh have a way of going back to fiat theoretically in a What's the best in a synthetic sense? While still, obviously, there is custodial risk associated with that, but it's hypothetically uh, something that someone can do to try and go back to synthetic USD. Is that a strategy that you see, or do you think it's more just like it just takes time for it to build out over time, and people will just still directly price things in Sats or use US dollar, but use Bitcoin as the as the rail? Yeah, well, um, 
right now, as you can see, the price of Bitcoin is starting to move up again. So uh, definitely when you price things in SATs, then uh, your offer uh, grows up in price uh, with Bitcoin. So uh, people usually use APIs just to connect to some kind of a price feed and essentially price it in US dollars or in local currency and transform that into SATs. And it's very understandable. At the same time, uh, there are businesses uh, who are 100% Bitcoin. There are also individuals who live 100% on Bitcoin. They don't have any fiat. So somehow they manage the situation. As far as I understand, uh, while they don't touch uh, most of their Bitcoin holdings because it's just their long-term stash, they have uh, a little bit of an allocation that they may short on BitMEX, for example, thus creating this uh, synthetic US dollar uh, that they can use anytime they want, right? They do pay with Bitcoin, but they have a little stash that keeps its value in terms of US dollars in perpetuity. Uh, well, less some fees that they pay to the exchange for the service, right? So I think it is possible and uh, with more and more liquidity in uh, the economy, it will be easier to achieve. What I'm looking forward to is the alleviation of this uh, custodial risk by the creation of peer-to-peer uh, -peer exchanges, peer-to-peer uh, -peer derivative places like uh, BitMEX, but on sidechains like Liquid, for example. And uh, there are firms that are already working on peer-to-peer -peer derivatives. Uh, uh, so it will be really great to see uh, such things appear because suddenly you have Bitcoins in your own possession and you can still hedge the risk of volatility, right? So that gives you a lot of power. You, you know, with enough liquidity, you really don't have to worry about fiat money anymore. And people can just accept uh, Bitcoin without worrying about volatility either. Right, right. And so in that world, so let's say, hypothetically, somebody is using Tether on Liquid or somebody is using, you know, LCAD as an example, or one of those uh, things. I guess the way... Some people might think, though, is isn't that just pushing the custodial risk back one problem? Because now you're just trusting then that there's enough, let's say, L, like Canadian dollars backing the LCAD or that Tether has enough US dollars backing their liquid USD Tether, right? Yeah, well, when you talk about uh, so-called stable coins, which are essentially fiat tokens that are backed by a fiat balance to, in someone's bank account, uh, then definitely such a risk exists. Uh, it's uh, out there. And sometimes it's even impossible to audit the reserves of such a company. So, for example, Tether has had a lot of uh, bad press, you know, even though it has not been proven that uh, they may or may not be insolvent, people still talk about it. So that's why, uh, you know, it, it's traded, Tether is traded slightly off one-to-one, -one, you know, just a little bit, uh, because uh, there is still a little bit of risk. But so far, we can see the confidence in Tether is pretty high because it's pretty much on par with US dollar. But what I talked before was more of a synthetic US dollar where uh, there is no cash balances on anybody's bank account. It's simply created by uh, creating a derivative contract and essentially shorting Bitcoin. So this is what the BitMEX's perpetual uh, USD contract is. It's a synthetic dollar um, in terms of um, its value. You don't really have any dollars in your bank account, but the value keeps uh, pegged to the dollar value, right? So it's, um, you know, even I don't understand fully how uh, derivative markets work. I don't have traditional finance background, but I understand this much. And I think even with this much, there is a lot of potential out there for people who want to exit the fiat world completely. Right. And so I guess, as you're saying, they would keep most of their stash in Bitcoin, but then let's say their day-to-day -day spending amount, that would be where they might keep some in this float, let's say, and that's where they're using like in this hypothetical example, something like BitMEX 1x short, which is kind of equivalent to just keeping it a Bitcoin amount that is stable in US dollar terms. That's probably the way to summarize that. Yeah. Okay. And in terms of the two worlds, are there other ways that, that we could see attention? So a quick example here might be something like, let's say in a few years time, we 
in the Bitcoin world want to move to Schnorr aggregated signatures uh, upgrade, right? So not the current Schnorr taproot fork, but the potentially in the future, that idea. Could something like that get blocked by the KYC compliant world? What's your view there? Well, they will certainly try. I don't doubt that, uh, as some people say, the next wars are the privacy wars in Bitcoin, uh, the scaling wars being behind. Um, but, uh, you know, with the decentralization of uh, Bitcoin capital, decentralization of Bitcoin development also happens, right? So there have been a few articles about uh, how Bitcoin development is uh, funded and how it's distributed in the world. Um, it's not a really bright story in terms of uh, uh, optimism because there is a little bit of a pessimism in terms of uh, the amount of developers working on Bitcoin Core and Bitcoin Protocol in general. However, I think that uh, due to an increase in amount of uh, Bitcoin developers and the fact that a lot of them are uh, anonymous, uh, this will be very difficult to pull off. At the end of the day, you may or may not force a Bitcoin developer uh, or even the maintainer himself uh, to merge a certain commit into the code, but you will not be able to force the users to upgrade to that version of the code and uh, run their full nodes with that code, right? So Bitcoin developers are the servants of Bitcoin, just like miners are the servants of Bitcoin. And it is the users who decide uh, what happens and what does not happen on Bitcoin. Uh, on uh, the protocol level, uh, which was very well demonstrated with the previous uh, fork wars and the uh, scaling debate and the UASF movement. Right. And I think the other important factor there is this concept of economic weight. So hypothetically, some nodes are worth more than other nodes. So hypothetically, Coinbase holding a lot of Bitcoins, their node holds a lot more "Quote unquote economic weight." So if a lot, if they hold a lot of bitcoins and it's a lot of people are just not self custodying, then potentially that's a vector as well. That uh, say Coinbase is more or whatever. Like it's not about Coinbase; it's about whatever big you know custodial exchange. Uh, if they face pressure from the government saying, "Hey, we don't like this upgrade. Don't go with it," then that's potentially an angle there uh, for uh, conflict. Yeah, yeah. Um, I'm not sure if it's uh, entirely correct to say that their node holds any money because uh, I'm sure that most of their funds are in cold storage and most likely true, in a multi-state wallet, right? Uh, the node being, well, for the most part, a hot wallet in many places, right? Um, so, but you are correct. Uh, some of these players may exhibit such behavior. It has been uh, done before and it will happen again. So we will only have to see how anti-fragile Bitcoin is long-term. And uh, so far, I've been optimistic and I have no reason to believe that this will be otherwise. True, true, yeah. And I think there I was referring more to the idea of their node being able to reject an incoming payment that they don't agree with. And let's say that payment is coming from a node that does want aggregated signatures in this hypothetical example, right? Um, but uh, another interesting one is, uh, is around, so we've got these two different worlds. Which one do you think newbies are more, you know, new coiners are more inclined to join? Well, I really want to say the non-compliant one, but at the same time, you know, I would be naive to say that because uh, most people are really uh, followers and they just uh, follow the general program, so to speak. So they'll just go with whatever is easier Whatever, is, whatever looks sexier, whatever is easier to use, right? Uh, user experience matters a lot to the average user. So I would say the uh, companies that are popping up right now, and even Coinbase itself, will still be uh, those companies that lead the way in terms of uh, uh, so-called mass adoption. Yeah, but uh, there will definitely be a wave of users who will take a little more time to study the topic. Uh, a little more deeply and learn about self-custody, learn about uh, privacy protections. So um, they will they will prefer the second type of the economy eventually because once you understand the full potential that Bitcoin can uh, provide you, uh, you just uh, can't resist really. Uh, 
and just go back to the fiat world and participate in their uh, fake uh, economy. <laughs> right. And we've got these two different worlds, these two economies. Does it matter if only one side works and do they benefit from each other existing? Well, yeah, I think it's a synthesis right now because, uh, like I said, a lot of the uh, movement still happens in and out of the Bitcoin economy. And, and that's where these on and off ramps uh, uh, excel. Uh, you know, uh, no matter how much uh, laws and regulations there are, people will still use them. Uh, and uh, there are large institutions waiting for specifically that, for a super-regulated, over-regulated entity that can provide them uh, an entry into the Bitcoin world and maybe even custody Bitcoins for them. But it doesn't matter. They still exist. So I think they, these two economies will be uh, complementary for a long time. Um, when we achieve our Bitcoin utopia, where Bitcoin is uh, the only currency in the world, it will be a happy day. Uh, but, you know... The word utopia already <laughs> has this uh, connotation of uh, maybe it's not going to happen. <laughs> That's right. Uh, and uh, another, um, well, I guess arguably we could say Bitcoin, the compliant world, benefits from the existence of the non-compliant world because it's almost like the existence of that gray market Bitcoin is some kind of evidence that there really is a sensor resistance and there really is seizure resistance to Bitcoin. And that kind of adds to the overall value of having this money that is outside any government's control or outside any one company's control, right? Yeah, well, I think the mere existence of Bitcoin affects how the fiat economy develops as well. And the tools that the fiat economy uses, for example, we have actually seen quite a uh, major improvements in the banking system over these uh, last 10 years. Uh, I still remember just 10 years ago, a wire transfer would take, you know, three, five business days to clear. Right now, it's uh, almost the same day every time we use wire transfers because they can see how, first of all, private companies like PayPal or TransferWise can do it much faster, so they have to compete with those. But they also see that people really love the idea of transferring large amounts of uh, uh, value uh, across the globe instantly and with minimal fees. So they are trying to uh, compete uh, as much as they can. So, you know, there's benefits both ways. Right. And uh, the optimist in me might say, well, look, that's making it easier and easier for people to onboard into Bitcoin. They're making these, you know, Swift GPI or whatever things that will speed up the transfers that allow more people to buy into Bitcoin when, when they are ready, right? Because obviously everyone has their own time frame on which they are ready. And speaking of making the world ready, we also need citadels. I know you are a, a, an advocate of the Bitcoin citadel idea. And you have spoken a little bit about rootless men of the world having our own nation. So what are you getting at there? Well, in terms of the rootless man, I talk primarily about how I feel about myself because I come from Russia and then um, I spent quite a bit of my life in Canada and I currently travel as well. So you may argue that I'm not really attached to any particular jurisdiction. I don't want to become a digital nomad for the rest of my life because that's not my uh, intention. But also, I don't feel like I have a very deep roots in any particular jurisdiction. So this led me to think that there are other individuals in the world who are like that. So we're not connected in terms of uh, our ethnicity or nationality or anything like that, but we may be connected uh, in terms of shared values, shared culture, the way we think about uh, uh, life in general and tradition, right? So why not get together and create these uh, communities where uh, shared values are the uniting factor rather than, you know, uh, an ethnicity, for example. So this is where the idea came from, but then uh, obviously you need some uh, economic factors uh, are baked into that as well. And, uh, you know, reading uh, Hoppe or reading uh, the uh, uh, Sovereign Individual, which uh, made a huge impact on me personally, uh, you start realizing that the world of today could be improved by a lot simply by 
changing a few variables in how uh, societies are organized, right? And if you take a group of people, uh, a group of ruthless men like myself and uh, unite them economically and uh, ideologically, you can create these uh, communities, uh, cities, uh, city-states, uh, or citadels, as we like to call them, after the uh, Bitcoin meme uh, of several years ago. Uh, you can create these uh, uh, places. They're not utopias in any way. Uh, it's uh, simply a city or a town or a community that has shared values and that has uh, traditions and culture that they want to abide by. And, uh, you know, there can be different types of citadels, can be citadels based on uh, common religious uh, affiliations, there can be citadels uh, based on common language, or simply citadels of uh, theater lovers. Right. And uh, do you believe that might represent a security risk for the, let's say there's a lot of rich individuals in that, town or in that citadel is that a security risk or do you think it's more like they would invest heavily into the security of that citadel i'm sure they will especially if the citadel itself becomes a sovereign entity then you simply have to uh, invest into defense systems it can be uh, actual physical borders and walls can be you know you can hire contractors uh, military and defense contractors to uh, guard you, but uh, it's nothing new because uh, right now I would argue that citadels uh, already exist in some places. And uh, actually, American Hodel, who was on your pod- podcast, uh, mentioned uh, uh, one of these uh, uh, citadels, where which is essentially a luxury community within a luxury community that is separated from the rest of the world by several walls. Right, so they already exist. Um, it's just. Uh, more about formalizing them and uh, uh, and maybe making them a little bigger because it doesn't have to be a congregation of only rich men. Rich men can definitely be there, and if they are uh, men of uh, values, they can be the leaders of such citadels. But uh, the general populace is welcome as long as they agree to abide by the rules of the citadel, which, as far as I understand, men of... Uh, values will create, you know, in accordance with those values. It will be just a very, very natural private property respecting rules. Right. And you mentioned Hans Hermann Hopper and I presume uh, Democracy, the God that Failed, uh, one of his well-known books. How did that book influence your view on citadels and, say, monarchy and anarcho-capitalism? Yeah, well... um, I'm actually uh, writing a piece right now that I will publish very soon. But uh, essentially, the way I see uh, democracy is that it's just an extension of the welfare state, of the socialist state, with a a simple trick. And that trick is that through uh, democratic uh, elections, you make it look like people have a choice of their leaders, right? Uh, which is uh, completely false, of course, because through populism, through all kinds of uh, manipulative tactics like propaganda, uh, only the desired uh, leaders end up at the top, right? And um, you don't really value skills uh, and uh, integrity in democracy. You only value uh, skills like uh, uh, who is uh, more clever, who is more uh, like a snake, you know, can... Uh, can find their way to the top, right? Uh, things like that. With uh, uh, democracy, the biggest problem is that there is absolutely no skin in the game for anybody who wants to be uh, at the top of the pyramid because the terms are very often limited. So, for example, in Russia, the term was four years, now it's six years, but it's still uh, the same uh, limited term. And when you have only four years uh, to spend uh, trying to make a country better, you will not really try to do anything good for the country. You will try to use that time as efficiently as possible for yourself and to advance your own personal goals, right? Because it's similar to renting a house instead of living in one for the rest of your life, right? If you live in the house for the rest of your life, you tend to 
care about it more, you clean it more, you take care of, uh, of the roof of the windows, you take care of the backyard. Everything must look nice. When you rent it, you don't care that much because someone else will come after you and, you know, they'll do the job probably. <laughs> so <laughs> this is where the idea comes here. So when you talk about monarchy, for example, obviously a monarch is someone who is attached physically to the, to the piece of land that they own, right? And they live there for generations and generations. So uh, if I had a piece of land that I know my children and grandchildren will live on, I will, I will do my best to make sure that this piece of land develops uh, really, really well. And if I have, uh, if I have subjects, you know, uh, the population out there, I will do my best to make sure that they are happy and uh, well fed and taken care of because uh, the well-being of such a state depends on the well-being of its uh, citizenry. Yeah. And so do you see it like there? So as I read it, Hopper's view is something like anarcho-capitalism, although he might use a different term. He might use the term private law society is his best, first best way of society organizing. And then in his view, he's saying monarchy is better than, is not as good as that, but it's still better, far better than democracy. And that's the argument you were you know, aligned with what you were saying. And that's, that's the argument Hans Hermann Hopper makes. And so in your view, is there like a tension there? Or can, do you see it like Bitcoin citadels of the future may have a kind of monarch, but you sort of opt in and opt out of it if the citadel is a good one or a bad one? I think the first thing that uh, people need to understand is that in our case, in my case, Monarchy is not uh, prescriptive. It's more of a descriptive term. It's a term that describes uh, a certain type of leadership, a hierarchy, if you will, because uh, it's, a, it's a simple law of nature that there is hierarchy in the world. There is the top and there's the bottom and there's the middle, right? So you don't have to call yourself a prince or a king. You can be the CEO and the citadel can be owned by a property development corporation where you are a chairman, right? So that is also a monarch, that is also a prince who makes most of the decisions and he may have a, a board of directors to assist him in uh, the decision-making process, right? So I don't think there is a conflict at all if, uh, because uh, in the privacy of your own family, you can call yourself the king and no one's going to be uh, really resisting, hopefully, right? Because it's just your own decision. It's just about titles. Just like in corporate environments, CEOs, CTOs, they are more or less uh, just uh, nomenclature, you know, they are completely arbitrary. You can call yourself anything you want. Uh, this, is a, this is an example. It's just monarchy and titles like the prince or king are quite lindy. They are quite uh, awesome in their own way, you know, and they <laughs> also portray this, uh, this uh, feeling of tradition, right, and culture where the monarch is usually the face of the nation. He represents the nation. He is uh, always in uh, public relationships. And people normally gather around the monarch and, uh, you know, uh, respect him. And uh, one of my favorite examples of that is the Prince of Liechtenstein, whom people love very much. Right. Yeah, I think that's probably one of the best examples because, uh, funnily enough, I think Someone correct me if I'm mistaken, but I believe he, the Prince of Liechtenstein is actually a fan of Hans Hermann Hopper and he's actually friends with Hopper and like they actually talk about stuff. Yeah, so it's a, that's a really interesting example for listeners who want to understand a little bit more about how that could potentially be a thing in the future. And also you mentioned The Sovereign Individual, which is a very well-read book within Bitcoin circles. One interesting point from that is this idea of the competitive tension, the competitive jurisdictions uh, that over time we will see many, many city-states and they will compete to try and have visitors and people come and live there because, the, and then in doing so, they will have to keep compete on things like taxes or in, in this world, it might be more like the costs, right? The price of coming to live in that citadel. Is that, a, is that something you see applying into this idea of Bitcoin citadels? Yeah, exactly. And uh, such uh, projects are already underway in some places. And there are uh, groups of individuals and companies around the world who work to make this a reality, such as uh, Titus Gebel's Free Private Cities Project, uh, which uh, essentially 
uh, is building a framework or a blueprint, if you will, for uh, such a city-state. Then you take the blueprint, and if you find a territory on the planet uh, that will, uh, for example, within a nation or maybe a private island that will be suitable for such a project, you build it, right? So the uh, issue here is not whether it's possible. The issue here is whether someone will actually do it. And I personally encourage as many of these, uh, you know, teams to actually start doing this and uh, setting up these cities. So the more, the better, of course, uh, as I tweeted once, I want to see a world of a thousand Liechtensteins. Right, right. And the question also is, does it, ten, does it turn on more funding? So, so essentially, do we need a couple more bull runs to make it happen, to make enough rich Bitcoiners? Or can some Bitcoiners start it today? Well, some Bitcoiners can start it today for sure. Uh, I would wait for another cycle or two. To, so that we can see the creation of a more wealth transfer, basically, and the creation of more Bitcoin millionaires out there. Because not all Bitcoiners are there purely for money. Money is only uh, great if you have the use for it, right? It's just a tool, uh, a means uh, to an end and not the end itself. So if there are enough uh, idealistic individuals uh, like myself uh, as well in the world, I think they will start it. Some will fail, some will not, but uh, we will see a lot of these uh, things happen because now we have this uncontrollable, uncensorable money and suddenly not a, not a single government can tell you what you can or cannot do with that money. If you feel like funding a, a crazy project, you just do it and you don't ask anybody. <laughs> I love that. Let's bring it back to OTC trading. So... Do you have any, uh, just wondering if you've got any interesting stories that you could share with the listeners on, uh, you know, maybe any funny OTC deals or maybe uh, is it difficult to negotiate because sometimes you'll get some customer who feels like they should be getting a discount when they really should be paying a premium on the price and things like that? Yeah, well, we did not really spend too much time in that type of OTC world, but uh, we have had our fair share of uh, uh, experiences and uh, some of them essentially involve the scammers who, uh, you know, pretend to work for some billionaires, uh, billionaire investors. And uh, the obvious, you know, uh, ruse is usually to uh, meet in the physical world somewhere uh, you know, on a neutral territory or they will tell you that they will come uh, to you. And uh, they will explain to you how successful they are, how much money their investors have. And then on the spot, they will require to do a test transaction of, let's say, 300000 with cash. <laughs> so <laughs> <laughs> that happened to us, yeah. And uh, uh, obviously, being more or less uh, experienced, we first of all, we don't carry Bitcoins on us ever, right? We don't sell uh, this way because everything is done electronically with us. But uh, yeah, we decided to give it a shot uh, a uh, couple of times, and it, it, both times it ended uh, in uh, in that way. Uh, we decided not to deal with those types of OTC deals anymore because it's just not worth it. You spend a lot of time. Uh, people just waste a lot of your time uh, on negotiations. At the end of the day, nothing happens. Um, right now, I would say um, the Bitcoin world needs uh, reputable businesses that have uh, uh, just a good reputation because it's still about uh, trust, uh, no matter how you put it. If you want to buy Bitcoins from us, you still have to send money first and then expect Bitcoins in return, right? There is no way to do that uh, uh, other than, you know, if you're extremely advanced and you have uh, uh, Bitcoin on the liquid network and you have a uh, USD, uh, USDT Tether on the liquid network, then you can launch this advanced atomic swap tool and do it in a no-custodial way, way. But, you know, I think it's going to take another few years before all of this uh, uh, becomes the industry standard. So right now it's all based on trust. And we don't mind it because, uh, you know, I like, I like doing deals on trust, based on trust. Uh, it, uh, it just builds relationships. Right, right. And so in your brokerage, what's, what are the sort of limits? Like what's the smallest deal you would do? And then 
what sort of size on the upper side would you do? What, uh, what you, whatever you can disclose, that is. Yeah, I mean, uh, the minimum is normally 25,000, whether it's euros or US dollars. And there's really no maximum. And whenever people ask me, what's your maximum maximum, I know that they're not going to proceed with any deal because uh, <laughs> normally when such relationships start, you send, you know, either the minimum or if you are really loaded, you may send 100,000, then 200,000, then a million. But no one sends 50 million or 20 million in one shot. And it's like whoever tells you that they will is uh, full of it. <laughs> yeah, well, that's a good heuristic, I think. And so do you get a lot of like new people coming to you for the first time if they're like a wealthy investor or do they tend to be someone who's already gone for like an exchange say and bought a small amount there and then they come to you for larger amounts on on an OTC? Yeah, I would say on average uh, our uh, clients already know what they're doing most of the time. We do want to attract uh, new investors and we're really happy to talk to them and walk them through the process of how everything works, how to set up a wallet and tell them, you know, what uh, custody solutions to use uh, and what custody solutions already exist. But um, uh, so far, based on the data, it's mostly experienced users. Yeah, gotcha. Okay. Uh, and in terms of in terms of liquid, so I know you have a product for liquid as well. It's called Liquidity with like ITI at the end. Uh, tell us a little bit about that and why you started that. Yeah, well, Liquidity was a fun project first. Uh, I just wanted to experiment with the Liquid Network itself because we are a member of the Liquid uh, Federation. So um, I saw no easy way to actually get uh, Liquid BTC, which is the native token of the Liquid Network that represents Bitcoin one-to-one. And uh, the only way was through a couple of exchanges. But, you know, I don't want to register for an account at an exchange just to get some uh, liquid uh, bitcoins in exchange for real bitcoins. So uh, I just decided to make a little tool for uh, myself. uh, And uh, together with our developer, we, uh, you know, spent a couple of weeks uh, designing it. And then essentially uh, we decided to open it up to the public because uh, we were getting requests on where do I get liquid uh, BTC, right? So we decided to open it up and suddenly it became quite popular. Uh, people are, are using it every single day. Uh, we are getting feature requests and people already asking us to add more pairs like Tether, Liquid Tether, Liquid Canadian Dollar to to the system So and open up the API. So we're working on all that. Um, I would say initially it was intended as a uh, content or like value marketing strategy for us, you know, Let's just create something valuable and let it, uh, you know, out there for free so that we can attract people to our main business, which is Bitcoin brokerage, right? But it looks like it's growing its own legs and I love it personally. Oh, that's cool. So in your view, do you see a vector for the censorship there that, okay, so with Liquid, obviously I see it's great for anyone who's a trader, anyone who's a broker, anyone who's an exchange trading amongst themselves and quickly moving Bitcoins around using LBTC, which, you know, it, what I'm getting at here is there's some debate in the community around things like how how much of it is an, is it an IOU? It's not Bitcoin itself, but at the same time, it can be useful as a tool for certain people uh, but then also the risk potentially and this is probably the main one is that your peg out of liquid back into bitcoin could get theoretically denied and so is that a risk that you see that people might be wary of or do you see it like that is a risk that can be managed i think this is a risk that can be managed but uh, the first thing people need to understand is that lbtc is a an IOU on Bitcoin. It is a token that represents Bitcoin and it's not Bitcoin itself. Now, the difference between a, a centralized custody and custody on the liquid network is that when you store, when you have a balance on uh, Coinbase, for example, uh, it's just a Coinbase that stores Bitcoin on your behalf. But when you have a balance on liquid in the form of a liquid Bitcoin, it is a consortium of uh, 15 members of the liquid federation that store your bitcoin it's a multi-sig wallet and not a single player uh, from the federation can actually take uh, your bitcoins or deny you the peg out capabilities right so uh, the vast majority of them actually have to agree on that 
Now, there is a uh, limitation on the amount of uh, uh, functionaries uh, who can sign transactions on the Liquid Network uh, because of the technical limitations of the multi-sig wallet currently, right? But in the future, with so-called dynamic federations, uh, the amount of functionaries can be increased dramatically and federation will become more uh, liquid, if you will, <laughs> in terms <laughs> of uh, its members. Yeah. So, but that is not all because uh, if uh, people are worried about uh, not being able to peg out uh, their uh, liquid Bitcoin back into Bitcoin, uh, as far as I remember, Blockstream is working on a self-peg out feature for uh, users. So the average user will actually be able to self-peg out. It's going to be a slow process like with uh, pegging as well. Uh, but uh, you will be able to request a self-peg out, and I believe, uh, I'm not really sure how long it will take, probably a day or two, you will be able to get your Bitcoins back. So, uh, you know, it's uh, it's an early technology as well. It's it's in production, it works right now, and people use it right now, uh, primarily businesses, but uh, give it a little more time, just like with anything else, and uh, I think it will prove itself. Right, right. And I think it, it, nobody's really disputing the point that in a B2B sense, right? So traders, businesses, exchanges, absolutely, go for it. I think, uh, yeah, the question here is more around should an individuals be using it? And so long as they know what other trade-offs they're making, they're entering into it with open eyes. And for some people, that's just not acceptable. They would never go there. But for many people, that is an acceptable trade-off that they would like to accept. Also wanted to talk about Moon Tower. So what's Moon Tower? Well, we are in the high network brokerage business, but we also see quite a lot of opportunity in the retail space. And uh, right now, uh, what's getting really hot is the uh, DCA bandwagon, right? So uh, we actually decided to develop a DCA app uh, a month ago. Uh, it was at the end of summer, but you know, uh, we were engaged in other activities, and now we're fully onto it. So. Moon Tower is a uh, passive investment platform that you will be able to use to uh, accumulate Bitcoin over time uh, based on your uh, settings. If you, for example, want to invest $100 uh, per week, you will be able to do that with Moon Tower. And uh, the service is primarily targeted at the European clients because we are licensed and based in Europe. Fantastic. So what's the expected timeline for moon tower i'd like to say as soon as it's ready but uh, within a few weeks yeah i would really like to uh, like it to happen especially now that the halving is coming in and uh, you know uh, we may not see the fall more right away but it would be really nice to position ourselves to, uh, at that time yeah and i guess the other question from a europe perspective there are some businesses who recently faced trouble there in terms of aml d5 aml i think directive 5 or whatever um there were some businesses i believe in the netherlands so bitter ruben um unfortunately said he had to basically wasn't able to comply so he's choosing to shut down the business is that a risk that you see for yourself or is it more like you you believe you'll be able to handle that uh, compliance workload or burden? Yeah, well, we are already a licensed business and we comply with um, all the uh, KYC AML regulations already. Uh, it is true that uh, the regulations are getting a little tougher and that is the primary risk. The primary risk is uh, not the regulations themselves, but uncertainty around the regulations. For example, when we started uh, our uh, company in Estonia, regulations were a lot softer, but right now, uh, due to those soft regulations, uh, a lot of you know unsavory characters uh, got licenses and uh, took advantage of that uh, uh, loophole, so to speak. And uh, the government wasn't really happy about that, so they decided to really crack down on those businesses and increase uh, the amount of uh, you know. Um, hurdles that uh, people have to go through to get the license and uh, uh, you know uh, we've had the license uh, all this time but we still have to comply with their additional requirements that uh, uh, that are coming this summer um, you know we'll handle it uh, because we're in there for uh, the long haul but uh, we definitely see a lot of uh, companies from European jurisdictions like uh, Estonia, Malta, uh, they just uh, drop out uh, and uh, they decide to move or shut down. 
Yeah, yeah. Well, we'll see how that uh, all plays out. So uh, in terms of um, listeners who want to find you online, let's say they're a listener and they want to get an OTC deal with you or they're interested in Moon Tower or they want to follow uh, your Bitcoin Reserve journal, where can they find you online? Well, uh, my personal uh, blog is degaia.co. Uh, the Twitter is y underscore degaia. And uh, you can find all our projects, business projects at l2b.global. That's where all the all of them are listed. Um, we'll be happy to answer any questions. There you go. Fantastic. Thank you for joining me. Thank you, Stefan. Glad to be here. I hope you enjoyed the show and just a quick request before I let you go. I'm looking to try and start doing some more live video interviewing. So I will be doing some more interviews on my YouTube channel. So please go and subscribe, youtube.com slash Stefan Levera. Of course, I will put those interviews onto the SLP audio stream and you'll definitely want to subscribe because my next coming interview is with Plan B and Safedean. Find the show notes and transcript at stefanlevera.com and I'll see you in the Citadels.